All right. Good evening. Happy Valentine's Day. It's good to see you all out on this beautiful Valentine's evening. And tonight, in honor of that, we're going to be in Philippians 2. We were going to be in Philippians 2 no matter what, but we're still going to be in Philippians 2. And we're going to talk about uh, what true love looks like. And if you're a child of the 80s, you know the picture on the upper right, and I can't help myself, as we talk about love, true love. Okay, nobody else saw the Princess Bride other than me. All right, there you go. Thank you. Yes, thank you for the three people that acknowledged that. So as we make our way to Philippians chapter 2, and we talk about true love, uh, what Paul's letter to the Philippians is really uh, themed, or how he uh, chooses to theme it based upon the 16 times he uses this word over and over again, is, is summed up in joy. That Paul is writing this letter from a place of joy to a people of joy to encourage them in their joy. And so the Apostle Paul uses this word 16 times, but as I mentioned to you last week in the introduction, he's writing this letter from prison. Paul's writing this joyful letter from a Roman prison around 62 AD. And what we find is as Paul's able to write to them about joy from a place of joy is that his joy wasn't rooted in his circumstance. That as Paul looked around and everyone else would have said, how can you possibly be joyful in this spot? It was because his joy was not based in his circumstance. And what he shared with them in chapter 1 was, look, I've got this opportunity for others to actually be encouraged, to be joyful as a result of what God is doing in my life. But then to go even further, he has this opportunity to share the gospel in an area and with people he would have never had an audience with. He's chained, in fact, to one of Caesar's Roman guards 24 hours a day. So he's got a captive audience to be able to share the gospel with on eight-hour shifts. And so three different times a day, he's got a new Roman guard inside the, the palace, one of Nero's very own guys right there to share the gospel with. And so Paul sees this is actually God-ordained. The, the sphere, the place that God has placed him is the place that he's able to share the gospel. Now all that brings us to chapter 2, and we're going to look to cover the first 11 verses of this uh, monumental chapter in Philippians, beginning here in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind." And so Paul's concern about the church in Philippi, and actually it it echoes his concern about the church in Corinth, when you remember those letters that he wrote that we covered all of last year, it begins with unity. That of all the things he could have been worried about, the sin issues, the people problems, his most basic concern for the church at large was, are you unified? And so he he goes into this second chapter by starting with the word, uh, therefore. And you all know, if you've been here any length of time at all, that when we see the word therefore, we ask ourselves, what is it there for? And it always points us back to the previous text. And so as Paul concludes chapter 1, how did we end our time last week? It was that, look, here's the reality about the the Christian life, and and the, the actual truth is any life, there's going to be trials. 
There's going to be suffering. There's going to be things that you come across in your life. It's, it's where we stand, where we sit in a fallen world. And so in this spot, you're going to have trials. You're going to have persecutions. There's going to be suffering headed your way. In light of that, he's recommending that they be unified as a group of believers. That there's actually strength as they come together. As they're able to come together, they're able to comfort, provide consolation to one another when they become of one mind. And as we come together as a church, as a group, as a body of believers, as you come together, you're able to be like-minded, to be of one mind, of one accord. You're able to then share what you have going on. And as we share with one another and are vulnerable with one another, what happens is uh, we are comforted. And the people that we're sharing with actually are comforted as well. It's this amazing Holy Spirit thing that happens where I'm actually comforted by being able to share with you and you're comforted by being able to hear what's going on in my life. No matter what we have going on, and so often what happens is you see it on the book of face, out on social media, everybody's perfect, right? They got it all going on. Everybody's life is all in order. And so we feel like we can't really share. It's scary. Can I really share with them? Can I tell them what's actually going on when the truth is, oh, that's all a facade. Their life is just as messed up as your life. It's just they're not willing to share it. And so as we come together, as scary as it is, there's actually unity involved in being vulnerable with one another, and we're able to then comfort each other as we develop and take on the mind of Christ. Now he continues here in verse 3 saying, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Now what happens so often is we have this unhealthy, unrealistic expectation that happens, this competition that takes place Uh, within the church, in society, going back to what we see in everybody else's life. I don't stack up, I don't measure up, therefore I cannot share. And what Paul says is beware, uh, let no selfish ambition or conceit enter into your mind. It's this idea of, of we are in competition with one another when we all know that nobody's really winning at this game when we compete with one another. The same thing happens inside the body of Christ, that we begin to compete. How are we doing versus the other church, uh, you know, versus the church down the street. And the reality is we all have a role to play. Every single one of us have a role, a part of the body, both in the body of Christ and in the church of Christ. And so for each, uh, there is a role, a position to play. In fact, what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 is this, for as the body is one, And has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are of one body, so also is Christ. That there are many body parts, and we're not in competition with one another because we're all part of the body of Christ. Now some parts are just naturally more glamorous than others, right? And so for some that are out there in our community, they're like the they're like the beach muscle, right? They got it going on. How you like that? There's a mic, and I got a backup mic right here. They're pow when they go out to the beach. But then others, and maybe this summarizes our church, they're like the ankle, right? Not nearly as attractive, but here's the thing. You go twist that bad boy, you're walking around with a limp. And so we're necessary as all different body parts. Not nearly as glamorous. Not everybody wants to flash it out there on the beach, and yet very necessary to be able to get around and navigate in the sphere of influence God has put us in. 
And what Paul is saying here is that you have to realize you're a part of the body of Christ. Some will be noticed more than others, but here's the key. Don't do it through selfish ambition, but be lowly of mind, esteeming others better than yourself. Think of other people better than you think of yourself. And yet, what does the flesh always want? The flesh always wants to be right. The flesh always thinks that I need to be number one. And one of the places it plays out more than any other is uh, just pull out of here tonight onto Woodlawn and wait for that guy to cut you off on the road. Have you ever noticed as you're driving that every person that drives slower than you is a moron? Do you notice that? Every one of them like, come on, Grandpa, I got places to go. He's a moron. Speed up. But then conversely, have you ever noticed that everyone that drives faster than you is a maniac? Look at him go. What's that guy's problem? Now, now how is it in every possible scenario uh, that you are the one in the right and everybody else around you is wrong? None of them can drive except you somehow. No one can navigate a car other than us. And so what we realize is uh, we always, the flesh always wants to put ourselves up on top. But what you don't know about the person that pulled out in front of you on Woodlawn when you're leaving this beautiful church service is um, they just had a terrible fight with their wife and they're taking off to try to get some space to try to figure out what is my next move. You don't have a clue. And yet we've already made judgments because we put ourselves above them, Right? What the Lord wants to impress upon our hearts is how about instead go, Lord, there's something going on there behind the scenes. Father, please be with them. Please step into that realm. I don't have a clue. You know, Lord, please be in the midst of that situation. That's what God wants us to do when we put others above ourselves. Because the reality is you can look to your right and look to your left tonight. And whichever direction you look, somebody is better than you at something. Every single person in here is better than everyone else at something. I don't know what the something is, but you all know that you're not the best at every possible thing you do. It's not possible to be the absolute best at everything. And so the reality is when we get to know one another and when we come into community, you realize it's a privilege. It is really, truly a privilege to be in community with these people that you're around. And as we do that, it's amazing what kind of joy comes out of our life as a result. Now, Paul continues, verse 4, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And so as we look out for one another, what we're doing is looking out for others' interests. Now, the truth is, I have no problem at all looking out for my interests. I am concerned about me most of the day. I think about me more than I think about any of you. That's just the truth. I would love to tell you it's different and that I'm far more spiritual than that, but the reality is I think about me an awful lot. And what Paul is suggesting is instead change your mindset and begin to think about others more than you consider yourself. And so this is his suggestion, the acronym JOY. It's Jesus, others, and you. You notice you're in third place. In that list. And so this is what we're called to do to think about others, what they're going through, what they're experiencing. I wonder how I can step in and help. And now what happens oftentimes in church is that um, we begin to over-spiritualize and actually overestimate just what kind of servants we really are, right? You come across 
uh, people and like, you know, I'm just a servant. I'm just here to serve, 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 serve. All I do is think about others all day long. But here's a little uh, test that I want to lay on you on a Wednesday night because I know most of you love me and while this might make you mad, you'll get over it uh, hopefully and you'll come back. Um, if you want to know what kind of servant you really are, uh, then reflect for just a few minutes on how you act or how you feel when you're treated like one. This is how we know what kind of servant we truly are. What happens when I'm treated like a servant? Do I feel empowered at that point? Do I feel like maybe I've been overlooked or forgotten? Because the truth is, more often than not, that's the kind of servant we really are. We actually want, we desire to be looked at well or, or thought of well or thanked. When a servant, the reality for a servant is they don't expect any praise, any recognition, any appreciation, any thanks, because they've been called to serve. As a servant, I'm just doing my job. How often does your boss come along and thank you for doing the very thing that he or she paid you to do? They paid you to do that job. And so it shouldn't be done looking for additional thanks. Now that being said, we should be a people that are thankful. We should be appreciative. And yet the, the mindset that we're talking about is that I'm not looking at this to be recognized. And just being point blank and honest, often when I do things, I wish I could say that, but I'm looking to be recognized. And so the idea here is to be very open and say that mindset is not healthy. And in fact, as Paul's sharing this with them, he's going to go into this example of, uh, well, Jesus. Jesus is the absolute best example that the Apostle Paul can come up with. And so he will begin here in verse 5 by saying, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Joy is not based upon my emotions. If I let my joy be based upon my emotions, it's going to be up, down, all around, all over the place. What Paul's suggesting is joy should actually be a mindset. Do I have the mind of Christ? In fact, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 is this. 1 Corinthians 2.16, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct Him? And then he goes on to answer, But we have the mind of Christ. That what Jesus has given us access to is to actually have His mind, His way of thinking. And when I take on the mind of Christ, I begin to be joyful in my mind. I change my mind, and He changes my heart. He changes my joy. He begins to come into me and change things from the inside out. And it, I begin to no longer care about what other people think. In fact, this is exactly what the mind of Christ looked like. John chapter 2 as Jesus is being right now approached by people, there's miracles happening, and everybody loves Jesus. This is years before they would uh, nail Him to a cross. But as He's being praised and lauded uh, in chapter 2 of John, verse 24, But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He wasn't looking for approval from man because he knew exactly what was in man. He knew exactly who it was, and we are a fickle lot. One day you're a champ, next day you're a chump. It's up and down. 
And so the mind of Christ was looking for the Father's approval. The way of thinking with the mind of Christ is going, uh, Dad, what do you think about this? Father, what do you think about this? What is your will in my life? Not me trying to impress it upon you or impress other people all around me, but the mind of Christ is concerned with what is the will of the Father. Now, verse 6. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being of the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus was constantly saying that He was God. Anytime you hear someone saying, you know, Jesus was never saying he was God, um, they've never actually read the Bible. That's my take on things. And I try to say it nicer than that, but if you flip with me to John chapter 10, this is Jesus here speaking about his relationship with the Father and his position with the Father. Uh, John chapter 10, uh, verse 30. He says this, uh, I and my Father are one. Not, not two, but one. We, we are the same. Jesus' words, not mine. If you flip over to John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus is being questioned. Show us the Father that we can believe. And what uh, He tells Philip about this question, Jesus responds and says, Have I been with you so long that you have not known Me, Philip? He who has seen Me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And what we're reading here is that Jesus was of the form of God. If you go to John chapter 1, it begins at the very beginning of John's gospel. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And if you skip down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus was flesh, but He was also God. He was God in the flesh. He took on the form of God. Now, the question is, what does that mean? In fact, what Paul would write in Colossians chapter 3 is this, that Jesus was the very image of God. Excuse me, Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So what does that mean, that He's the image of God? Did He, did he look like God physically? And the answer is, is no. Jesus, having all the ability to make himself look like anything or anyone he could, uh, did not make himself look like the Jewish Brad Pitt, right? Jehovah Pitt. That's not who he made himself look like. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 2, speaking of the Messiah, says, He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That Jesus came and looked like every other light brown Jewish guy in all of Israel. And I can prove it because this is why the Sanhedrin had to bribe Judas to betray him. They couldn't tell him from every other Jewish guy in the temple. He looked like all the rest of them. So what does it mean that he was in the form of God? This phrase, uh, the image, or Hebrews chapter 1 says, the expressed image of God does not denote Jesus' appearance, but his authority. In the ancient world, uh, for the Caesar at the time, he would have a signet ring. And if he pressed his signet ring into a message or onto a parcel, onto a package, into wax, he would impress his image onto the parcel, onto the package. And what that meant, not that Caesar was on the package, but he had expressed his image 
onto the package, and that meant his 100% of his authority went with whatever he was sending on its way. Jesus is the expressed image of God, having all of the authority of God in him. This is what it means to be of the expressed image. And this, by the way, wasn't robbery for him. It wasn't wrong of him to have this, to possess this authority because he was and is God. And so, that leads us up to the next verse. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now this phrase, no reputation, in the Greek the word is kinu or kino, and it means literally he emptied himself, like uh, pouring water out of a glass, that he emptied himself. Now the question is, what did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his divinity? That he emptied himself from being God? Well, the answer is no. He was God, and he was human. So what then did he empty himself of? And the answer is, and this is actually called the great kenosis, for those of you that like theology, which probably nobody, but if you like theology, this is called the great kenosis or the great emptying. And what it means is he emptied himself of his superhuman God powers. He emptied himself. He, he willingly gave up his God powers. Now that means that no miracle, no teaching, no prophetic word, no ministry that Jesus did, did he do of his own power. Now why did I bring all that up? It means that Jesus was fully and completely reliant upon the direction, the guidance, the obedience that he had to the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit. Just like you and me. This is the importance of the great kenosis, the great emptying of God, of Jesus. And it also, by the way, radically changes how you look at all the Bible stories you heard as a kid. Because I don't know about you, when I, when I listened as a kid to the miracles and to the, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water, and I remember all those stories, I loved them as a kid, but here's the thing, of course he could do all that because he's Jesus. Jesus is God and God is Jesus. That's, how, that's the answer to every question that's asked in children's church. What's the answer to the question? Jesus! What's the answer? God! That's the answer to every question. And so I learned that. And yet I was never completely impressed by any of the Bible stories because, well, of course Jesus could do those things. He's God. What's the big deal? Until you begin to wrap your mind around the fact that what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 30, and this speaks to this idea of the great kenosis that Paul is sharing with them. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus says, I'm doing nothing of my own authority. I'm doing everything that the Father is instructing me to do. Nothing from my own power, but only from the power of the Spirit after I've been obedient to what the Father has guided me to do. Just like what you and I have access to. In every way He can connect with us. In every way He could relate to us because He emptied Himself. He had to rely upon the Father. Which means when you get to stories like Matthew chapter 14, famous story 
of Jesus walking on water. So here's Jesus. He sent the disciples out ahead of him. The storm is now raging. They're being tossed back and forth. And what happens? But they see Jesus coming. They're scared to death. It's got to be a ghost. And so they call out to him. And in verse 27 of Matthew 14, Jesus spoke and said, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so we read that story. And for many of us, we've heard all kinds of messages that you just have to have faith. You've got to have the faith to step out of the boat, brother. If you have the faith and you believe, then you can achieve. And I've probably even said something similar to that with a little less flair. Um, but as I reread this story, did you notice what had to first take place? Peter had to be called by Jesus before he could come to Jesus. Peter had to have the approval of the Father. It wasn't solely based upon his faith. It was based upon a calling from the Father. Now you can imagine that if I just operated on faith with no calling, uh, here in a couple months, uh, I'm going to get an opportunity to go on a cruise. And now you can imagine me on a cruise ship. I'm like, you know what? Uh, I got the faith from the 10th story of this here cruise ship. I'm just going to step out in belief. I'm going to believe that I'm a walking on the water and full of faith. I step out over the veranda. Kaplunk. And you all are looking for a new pastor. Right? But I had the faith. What I lacked was the calling. I hadn't gotten a word from God that said step out. And so it doesn't matter how much I exercise the faith willy-nilly if I don't first have the calling to step out. But the Spirit-led life, the Spirit-filled life looks like obedience to the call of the Father. God is directing me to do this thing. And here's the beautiful part. If He directs you to do it, He'll give you the faith to exercise. It's His faith. He gives us the faith. We exercise the faith to step out. And then He holds us up. And so the, the truth is, for many, they were, weren't called to come to Charleston and plant a church. It doesn't mean you have less faith than me. It just means that was the calling that I received. And the faith God gave myself and my family. And so we were called to this place by God and then exercised the faith that God gave us. And this is what it looks like to live by the Spirit. Now, Jesus, emptying Himself, He's now reliant upon the Spirit. And being, verse 8, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so Jesus has no recorded miracle in the New Testament until the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Understand that. That until Jesus received the Spirit after His baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Him, there's no recorded miracles of Jesus prior to that point in time. Jesus operating with the power that was given to Him by God, which, by the way, He also promises to us. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus getting ready to ascend up into heaven, and what He says is it is uh, 
But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the earth. You'll receive the power, the, the epi, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, not so you can just go out and, and perform faith acts all over the place, but so you can specifically be witnesses. So that we can be witnesses for Jesus in our own backyards and around the world. This is the idea. But the picture of baptism is a picture of us dying to ourselves. And this is key. It's me putting off my flesh, dying to myself, my own selfish will, being fully surrendered to the Father. And this is what defined Jesus' life. He was fully surrendered to the will of the Father. What we're told in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, was that He is a lamb that was slain from the very beginning. It's important to note that, that Jesus willingly took on that spot. That He didn't uh, miss a meeting. You know, have you ever been in the corporate world, sometimes you miss a meeting, and what happens is you usually get appointed to the thing because you missed the meeting. Like, Jesus didn't miss a meeting and come back and go, hey, Jesus, sorry to tell you, but two to one, buddy, you got outvoted. Me and the Spirit, we, we decided you're the guy. You're going down to be the lamb. You're giving up your life. Like, Jesus didn't miss a meeting. He willingly took on the role of being the lamb. And it wasn't just for a certain specific time. Jesus didn't merely just go to the cross for a, a couple hours and endure pain and suffering. This is for all of eternity. John chapter 10, verse 18. Jesus here speaking about His will and the will of the Father. John ten eighteen says this, No one takes it from me. I'll go to verse 17. Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. It was His decision to lay down His life for you and I. And as a result... For all of eternity, while you and I live in our perfected bodies for all of eternity, what John witnessed when he saw Jesus in heaven was a lamb that was slain. The only one that still bears the marks of our sin, of the sacrifice that was necessary, is him for all of eternity. Which is why when we look upon him in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, we're going to cry out, verse 12, excuse me, we're going to cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and is in the sea and uh, that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and power be to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb. You and I are going to have no other reaction when we see Him other than as the tears fall down to say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain from the very foundation of the earth for me. He, he gave all that up willingly for you and I. Verse 9, Therefore, God, is also, God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name which is above every name. He being willing to humble Himself, God then exalted Him as a result. 
putting his name, the name of Jesus. It's actually a, a Greek name. In the Hebrew, it's Yehoshua. It's Jehovah is salvation. Yehoshua, Yeshua, will be lifted up for all of eternity as he becomes, as he is our salvation. He is exalted. And now for you and I, we have a decision. If we humble ourselves in this life, we have an opportunity to be exalted right there alongside him, seated at the right hand of the Father. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 says this, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, not today, but in due time. That he may exalt you. And so if we humble ourselves in this life, the promise is exaltation. But if we refuse to humble ourselves, the reality is it's humiliation for all of eternity. As we conclude here with these last two verses, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In heaven, under the earth, on the earth, every tongue without exception. The question is, are we going to confess it in this life? Are we going to confess it when we see him in the afterlife? Refusing to confess that Jesus is Lord, when we stand before him, we're going to see how holy he is. We're going to see just how holy he is, and we're going to fall to our face and say, Jesus is Lord. So if you willingly bow the knee, the Lamb picks you up and you're exalted. And for those that refuse to bow the knee, it is, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Now the beautiful picture is, if we follow in His footsteps, and we say, Lord, it's not my will, it's yours. Not my life, but it's your life. We have an opportunity to be exalted for all of eternity. It's a pretty good trade-off when you think about it. Now all this as we wrap up through these first 11 verses, we, we talked about a lot of big theological ideas. I want to make sure to share with you, uh, Paul didn't communicate this to the Philippians so that they could have a theological debate. He, he wasn't worried about uh, whether or not they were going to debate it in seminaries all over the country. Paul shared these things because what he knew is life was already hard for them and it was about to get harder. As they were dealing with difficulties and persecution and the trials of their life, he wanted to communicate to them the tremendous love of Christ. What, what Jesus would say in John chapter 15 is that no greater love has won than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. And as Paul's communicating that, what he's trying to say is, as you're going through these hard things, please know Jesus can relate. He is not shocked by it, but he's also able to, to come alongside us and to, to, to come there and comfort us because he too has experienced tremendous suffering. Able to console us. He can relate to us. And the reality is he gave his life for us for the promise of something better. He told the disciples in John 14 that if I depart from you, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, then I'm going to come back 
and receive you. I'm going to come back and get you. I'm not going to leave you in this spot. So we have this promise of Jesus that as he's laid down his life, he's going to prepare a place and he's not going to leave us here alone. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your tremendous word. Lord, thank you for the power that exists in scriptures that are thousands of years old, Lord. And yet they're so very applicable today that your promise is not to leave us or forsake us, but to be here with us, not, not just alongside us, but to actually dwell in us, to be a part of our lives. And then amazingly to come upon us and to give us power to be witnesses to the people and the communities around us. And so, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this tremendous gift. But, Lord, beyond all that, we thank you for being willing to humble yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nothing could be more humiliating. Nothing could have been more painful or agonizing. And yet you did it willingly for every person in this room, every every person around the globe for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life you love the world Lord thank you for loving those even in spite of their rejection of you so much to give your life that's a love that's hard to comprehend and yet we're thankful for it thank you father for the way you love us thank you for the way you never give up on us Thank you for your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.